Chapter 6 of Vandover and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gosh45. Vandover and the Brute. Chapter 6. Everybody in San Francisco knew of the Ravises, and always made it a point to speak of them as one of the best families of the city. They were not new, and they were not particularly rich. They had lived in the same house on California Street for nearly twenty years, and had always been comfortably well off. As things go in San Francisco, they were old-fashioned. They had family traditions and usages and time-worn customs. Their library had been in process of collection for the past half-century, and the pictures on the walls were oil paintings of steel engravings and genuine old-fashioned chromos, beyond price today. Their furniture and ornaments were of the preceding generation, solid conservative. They were not chosen with preference to any one style, nor all bought at the same time. Each separate piece had an individuality of its own. The Ravises kept their old things, long after the fashion had gone out, preferring them to the smarter art objects on account of their associations. There were six in the family, Mr. and Mrs. Ravis, Turner, and her older brother Stanley, Yale 88, and a very serious young gentleman of 27, continually professing an interest in economics and finance. Besides these were the two children, Howard, nine years old, and a sister, aged 14, who had been christened Virginia. They were a home-loving race. Mr. Ravis, senior, belonged to the Bohemian Club, but was seldom seen there. Stanley was absorbed in his law business, and Turner went out but little. They much preferred each other's society to that of three-fourths of their acquaintances, most of their friends being friends of the family, who came to dinner three or four times a year. It was a custom of theirs to spend the evenings in the big dining-room at the back of the house, after the table had been cleared away, Mr. Ravis and Stanley reading the papers, the one smoking his cigar, the other his pipe, Mrs. Ravis with the magazines, and Turner with the Chautauquan. Howard and Virginia appropriated the table to themselves, where they played with their soldiers and backgammon board. The family kept two servants, June, the China boy, who had been with them since the beginning of things, and Delphine, the cook, a more recent acquisition. June was, in a way, a butler and second boy combined. He did all the downstairs work and the heavy sweeping, but it was another time-worn custom for Mrs. Ravis and Turner to spend part of every morning in putting the bedrooms to rights dusting and making up the beds. Besides this, Turner exercised a sort of supervision over Howard and Virginia, who were too old for a nurse but too young to take care of themselves. She had them to bed at nine, mended some of their clothes, made them take their baths regularly, re-established peace between them in their hourly quarrels, and, most arduous task of all, saw that Howard properly washed himself every morning, and on Wednesday and Saturday afternoons that he was suitably dressed in time for dancing school. It was Sunday afternoon. Mrs. Ravis was reading to her husband, who lay on the sofa in the back parlor smoking his cigar. Stanley had gone out to make a call, while Howard and Virginia had foregathered in the bathroom to sail their boats and cigarette boxes in the tub. Toward half-past three, as Turner was in her room writing letters, the doorbell rang. She stopped with her pen in the air, wondering if it might be Vandover. It was June's afternoon out. In a few minutes the bell rang again, and Turner ran down to answer it herself intercepting Delphine, who took June's place on these occasions, but who was hopelessly stupid. Mrs. Ravis had peered out through the curtains of the parlor window to see who it was, and Turner met her and Mr. Ravis coming upstairs, abandoning the parlor to Turner's collar. Mama and I are going upstairs to read, 
explained Mr. Ravis. It's some one of your young men. You can bring him right in the parlor. I think it's Mr. Haight, said Turner's mother. Ask him to stay for tea. Well, said Turner doubtfully as she paused at the foot of the stairs. I will, but you know we never have anything to speak of for Sunday evening tea. June is out, and you know how clumsy and stupid Delphine is when she waits on the table. It was young Haight. Turner was very glad to see him, for next to Vandover she liked him better than any of the others. She was never bored by being obliged to entertain him, and he always had something to say and some clever way of saying it. About half-past five, as they were talking about amateur photography, Mrs. Ravis came in and called them to tea. Tea with the Ravises was the old-fashioned tea of twenty years ago. One never saw any of the modern delicacies on their Sunday evening table, no enticing cold lunch, no spices, not even catsups or pepper sauces. The turkey or chicken they had had for dinner was served cold in slices. There was canned fruit, preserves, tea, crackers, bread, and butter, a large dish of cold pork and beans, and a huge glass pitcher of ice water. In the absence of June, Delphine, the cook, went through the agony of waiting on the table, very nervous and embarrassed in her clean calico gown and starched apron. Her hands were red and knotty, smelling of soap, and they touched the chinaware with an overzealous and constraining tenderness as if the plates and dishes had been delicate glass butterflies. She stood off at a distance from the table, making sudden and awkward dabs at it. When it came to passing the plates, she passed them on the wrong side and remembers herself at the wrong moment with, with a stammering apology. In her excess of politeness, she kept up a constant murmur as she had to there once. Another fork? Yes, sir. She'd get it right away, sir. Didn't Mrs. Ravis want another cup of tea? No? No more tea? Well, she'd pass the bread. Some bread, Master Howard. Nice French bread. He always liked that. Some more preserved pears, Miss Ravis? Yes, miss. She'd get them right away. They were just over here on the sideboard. Yes, here they were. No more? Now she'd go and put them back. And at last, when she had set the nerves of all of them in a jangle, was dismissed to the kitchen and retired with a gasp of unspeakable relief. Somewhat later in the evening, young Haight was alone with Turner, and their conversation had taken a very unusual and personal turn. All at once, Turner exclaimed, I often wonder what good I am in the world to anybody. I don't know a thing. I can't do a thing. I couldn't cook the plainest of meals to save me. And it took me all of two hours yesterday to do just a little buttonhole stitching. I'm not good for anything. I'm not a help to anybody. Young Haight looked into the blue flame of the gas log, almost the only modern innovation throughout the entire house, and was silent for a moment. Then he leaned his elbows on his knees and, still looking in at the flame, replied, I don't know about that. You've been a considerable help to me. To you? exclaimed Turner, surprised. A help to you? Why, how do you mean? Well, he answered, still without looking at her, one always has one's influence, you know. Ah, lots of influence I have over anybody, retorted Turner incredulously. Yes, you have, he insisted. You have plenty of influence over the people that care for you. You have plenty of influence over me. Turner, very much embarrassed and not knowing how to answer, bent down to the side of the mantelpiece and turned up the flame of the gas log a little. Young Haight continued, almost as embarrassed as she was. I suppose I'm a bad lot, perhaps a little worse than most others, but I think, I hope, there's some good in me. 
I know all this sounds absurd and affected, but really, I'm not posing. You won't mind if I speak just as I think for this once. I promise. He went on with half a smile. Not to do it again. You know my mother died when I was little, and I have lived mostly with men. You have been to me what the society of women has been to the other fellows. You see, you're the only girl I ever knew very well, the only one I ever wanted to know. I have cared for you the way other men have cared for the different women that come into their lives, as they have cared for their mothers, their sisters, and their wives. You have already influenced me as a mother or a sister should have done. What if I should ask you to be... to be the other to me, the one that's best of all? Young Haight turned toward her as he finished and looked at her for the first time. Turner was still very much embarrassed. Oh... I'm very glad if I've been a help to to anybody, to you, she said confusedly, but I never knew that you cared, that you thought about me in that way. But you mustn't, you know. You mustn't care for me in that way. I ought to tell you right away that I never could care for you more than I have always done. I mean, care for you only as a very, very good friend. You don't know, Dolly, she went on eagerly. How it hurts me to tell you so, because I care so much for you in every other way that I wouldn't hurt your feelings for anything. But then you know at the same time it would hurt you a great deal more if I shouldn't tell you, but encourage you and let you go on thinking that perhaps I liked you more than anyone else when I didn't. Now wouldn't that be wrong? You don't know how glad it makes me feel that I've been of some good to you, and that is just why I want to be sincere now and not make you think any less of me, think any worse of me. Oh, I know, answered young Height. I know I shouldn't have said anything about it. I knew beforehand, or thought I knew, that you didn't care in that way. Maybe I have been wrong, she replied, in not seeing that you cared so much, and I have given you a wrong impression. I thought you knew how it was all the time. Knew how what was, he asked, looking up. Why, she said, knew how Van and I were. I knew that Van cared for you a great deal. <laughs> yes. But, you know, she went on, hesitating and confused, you know we are engaged. We have been engaged for nearly two years. But he don't consider himself as engaged. The words were almost out of Height's mouth, but he shut his teeth against them and kept silent. You hardly knew why. Suppose Vandover were out of the question he said, getting up and smiling in order not to seem as serious as he really was. Ah, she said, smiling back at him. I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. I've never asked myself that question. Well, I'm saving you the trouble, you see, he answered, still smiling. I am asking it for you. But I don't want to answer such a question offhand like that. How can I tell? It would only be perhaps just now. Young Haight answered quickly that just now he would be contented with that perhaps, but Turner did not hear this. She had spoken at the same time as he, exclaiming, But what is the good of talking of that? Because no matter what happened, I feel as though I could not break my promise to Van, even if I should want to. Because I have talked like this, Dolly, she went on more seriously, you must not be deceived or get a wrong impression. You understand how things are, don't you? Oh, yes he answered, still trying to carry it off with a laugh. I know, I know, but now I hope you won't let anything I have said bother you 
and that things will go on just as if i hadn't spoken just as if nothing had happened why of course she said laughing with him again of course why shouldn't they they were both at the ease again by the time young height stood at the door with his hat in his hand ready to go he raised his free hand over her head and said with a burlesque dramatic effect trying to keep down a smile bless you both go go marry vandover and be happy i forgive you uh, don't be so utterly absurd she cried beginning to laugh end of chapter six recording by goss forty five